Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Vendor Hardware. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. we got a, a bit of a shortened episode for you today. Maybe it'll be shortened. We're, we're planning for it to be shorter. <laughs> Not likely. It'll probably end up being super long because we are incredibly <laughs> long-winded. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're going to do a quick what we've been watching. Uh, a, we're going to do a quick what we've been watching, a quick slash film court for you, and then uh, a review of Hidden Figures. Uh, and then probably a, a pretty lengthy after dark. We got a lot of feedback about silence and uh, about how wrong we were in our review of Martin Scorsese's silence. So <laughs> looking forward to delving into that feedback. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what we got on store for today. Now uh, I do want to mention one thing real quick. Uh, last week we had our 400th episode, and uh, I had some impromptu, extemporaneous reflections on what it was like to to do 400 episodes of the show. And I re- <laughs> I re-listened to that co- component of the show, and I think uh, I ended up coming across much more needier than I felt like <laughs> I wanted to come across, you know, like uh, talking about broadcasting into the void and stuff. I think the only thing – firstly, a lot of people emailed in saying, hey, you're not broadcasting into the void – we're actually still listening, and I appreciate that. I think the only the point I was trying to make was not like, oh, please shower me with your praise. Uh, it was more like uh, a, a broader point about the way we interact with media. You know, like there are lots of things that we are fans of uh, that we don't necessarily express uh, our gratitude for every single week. And I'm not saying therefore you should. I mean, it would be great if you did, but it, it's like it's not like. Uh, I expect everyone to do that. It's just kind of a weird thing. Like when you're, when you've been watching something or uh, listening to something like this for a real long time, uh, it, it just is not how, uh, you interact with that show. You, you don't usually, uh, express gratitude on a weekly basis or anything. So what um, you're saying, Dave, is everybody don't stop appreciating and sending your gratitude just because we, <laughs> we are at 401 now. That's uh, right. That's exactly we, what I'm saying. We still need it like a uh, IV drip. Uh, every week. I mean, so. that's not exactly what I'm saying, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think on a broader point, yeah, you're right. Like, it, <laughs> if you, if you do listen to shows like this, uh, not just us, but like any podcast, uh, you know, let, let them know that, uh, you appreciate what they're doing. Uh, we did but, get a lot of emails this week of people congratulating us for, for 400 and being very kind. And, uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I think the cor- the corollary to that is also that like uh, oftentimes the the and again I think this is going to come off as more needy than I uh, am hoping, <laughs> but oftentimes like the criticism uh, comes through like a lot louder just be- because of part A, which is people don't often uh, you know repeat their appreciation of you because uh, that's just not what humans do in general. Uh, then well, you're not motivated to to you know write unless you're kind of upset about something. Exactly, like exactly. So then, so then, like the uh, perspective you get as the host or uh, producer or co-host or whatever is kind of skewed. Is all I'm saying. Right. Um, and that's that's what I was trying to express last week. And I didn't do a terribly terribly good job. And hopefully, I did a slightly better job this week. Uh, but uh, in any but case, Dave, I was I was heartened by how many people in the food service industry. Emailed us to say that if we were ever in their establishment, we'd get hooked up. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was very nice. Perks of the job. Um, anyway, we gotta we gotta create some sort of map with pins in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of, right. uh, places we can eat for we, free. We should have a slash filmcast f- uh, food tour. I think there is you the, go. Uh, yes, is the a road trip across America <laughs> where we don't have to pay for anything. <laughs> All right. Anyway, you can always keep those emails coming into slash filmcast at gmail dot com. 
let's get to what we've been watching. Just a few items we've been watching this week. Uh, I had a chance to check out the new Jim Jarmusch film, Patterson. Morning, Donnie. Everything okay? No, not really. My kid needs braces on her teeth. My car needs a transmission job. My wife wants me to take her to Florida, but I'm behind on the mortgage payments. My uncle called from India and he needs money for my niece's wedding, and I got this strange rash on my back. How about you? I'm okay. Ready to roll, Patterson? Yeah. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. Your poetry is really good. And someday you might let the world read it. But me the eye. <laughs> you are a great poet. Read the plot summary real quick. Uh, Patterson, played by Adam Driver, is a hardworking bus driver in Patterson, New Jersey, who follows the same routine every day. He observes the city and listens to fragments of conversations while picking up and dropping off his passengers. Patterson also writes heartfelt poems in a notebook, walks his dog, and drinks one beer in a bar after his shift is over. Waiting for him at home is Laura, uh, his beloved wife, who champions his gift for writing. So, uh, this is the first Jim Jarmusch film I've seen in a long time. And, uh, guys, I have to say, I, I heard a lot of people talk about how they really love this movie. It presents this slice of life in a very charming, loving way. Uh, it is not a very event-filled, plot-filled movie. His um, movies rarely are. Yeah his, yeah, his movies rarely are. And you know what, guys? I, I have come to the conclusion that I think Jim Jarmusch's movies just aren't really for me. And that's fine. That's fine. Uh, really? the, you you liked about, uh, the last one, the vampire one. We talked about that. I have not seen that movie yet. What? Only Lovers Left Alive. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I haven't seen Broken Flowers either, actually. Oh, Broken I, Flowers is one of my favorite come on. movies. Okay, it's so good. well, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, see, Dave, what? Uh, so, yeah, he has this tendency, right? His movies are kind of meandering and plot free. But there are some of them that I think you would enjoy. Like That's The Limits true. of Control, I would not recommend to you. Because that movie, I love that movie, but it's also very weird and very particular. Only Lovers Left Alive, come on. That movie is fantastic. You should check that out. So I, I got really excited to see this movie because a lot of people listed it on their top 10 of 2016. Because uh, I think it had a limited run in 2016. And also, uh, you know, it seemed like a very pleasant movie. A very uh, mm-hmm. kind of hopeful you know, non-dark, like, there, there's there's very little that's uh, upsetting about it in a time when, you know, we pr- probably need as much cheering up as, as possible from our films. Uh, and so I got really excited to see it. Uh, I think what makes me feel like I am not right for these these movies is that my you interpretation... You haven't seen any of them? <laughs> my, uh, yeah, A, I haven't seen most of them, but B, uh, my interpretation of this movie was completely the opposite of uh-huh. uh, all the interpretations that I've read from like many You're like critics. look at this loser just wasting his life. Yeah, no, that's basically it. It's ba- not 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 <laughs> I quite know you Dave. Not I know quite you. that harsh. Not quite that harsh, but it's like uh this is a guy who I feel like uh his life his, his the rhythms of his life are destroying his soul. That's what I feel. He, he has this <laughs> he has this wife in this movie who is is absolutely gorgeous. But who, uh, and is very loving and kind, but fills the house with all of her art. 
Uh, and every day he comes home, she's painted something else. Hey, hey, honey, I painted the curtains today. Hey, honey, I painted, uh, the, uh, floor. Oh, hey, there's a new, there's new paintings all over the wall. And you feel him physically, like in the house, is physically just boxed in by all of her art. And, and it's like oppressing him. Um, some people would say that's a vibrant way to come home, like a life filled with <laughs> a home filled with art and creativity, but not David Chen. Not me. Not me. It's just a, like you can see the visual representation of how his wife is, amazing. Just, is just occupying all of his space. And, um, you know, and of course the daily rhythms of his life as a, as a bus driver, uh, uh, and he, he, he finds a lot of solace in, in being able to write poems and listen to all these, these, uh, neat little conversations that people have on the bus, but, but uh, really, he's a brilliant poet who uh, is not known as a brilliant poet because, you know, life circumstances have held him back, in my opinion. And uh, and that is not the interpretation that most people take from this movie. And I feel like I am the wrong person to talk about Patterson. Dave, so please, please take a, take an evening and see Broken Flowers. Yeah, All right, man. Broken All Flowers, right. Dead Man. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll put I'll put the movies on on the list. Like so so they are. Uh-huh. are you're telling me like only lovers left alive. This vampire movie is yes. probably. Uh, I, th- more, I think you will really enjoy that. more of a more has more plot than this Patterson film. Well, it just is, his movies aren't really about plot. They're about like the characters and their lives and stuff. Uh, I did do a long review of this, but I did it with uh, Angie Han and Christy Puchko. That's right. That's right. Uh, because some people couldn't find the time to see the movie. Um, but no, it's, it's tremendous. I, I don't know you who should, you're talking about there. Um, I really want to see that too. I still haven't seen that. I got to put that guys, on the list. But, come on. but see Broken Flowers, Dave. See Broken Flowers. Dead Man is, yeah, come on. Uh, well, in, in any case, I, I had the complete wrong interpretation of Patterson. <laughs> so I think like, I just, I don't know what I'm talking about. And that's fine. Wow. That's fine. I'm just not, uh, the right person. Now I did, you know, I tweeted out my opinion of it and I did get one tweet back that said, Hey, that's how I read the film too, which is always encouraging. <laughs> but, uh, but more, most people, you know, read it as a tale of hope, as a tale of, of peace. And, uh, maybe you will read it that way too. So that's Patterson. It's the new film by Jim Jarmusch. It's out in theaters right now. Uh, that's what I've been watching. Devendra, what you've been watching? Oh, I saw, uh, Mira Nair's Queen of Katwe. And this is a film about um, a girl growing up in a poor neighborhood in Uganda who finds uh, that she's very good at chess and she ends up becoming a, you know, a nationwide a chess champion in Africa and even competes in the Olympics at some point. It's a really sweet and lovely film. Like, honestly, like, guys, this movie fits the mold of so many other films, right, where kids from underprivileged backgrounds kind of find some sort of solace and, uh, I don't know, like some sort of self-worth, right, in a game or a sport or something. So we've seen this so many times. Yeah, but it's, like, it's for- like a Disney sports film, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, what was that uh, baseball movie with um, just a few couple of years ago? Something they, they- Arm, right? Mm-hmm. Like that John Hamm movie you're thinking yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. So um, – the cool thing about this is that, um, you know, it's set in Uganda. There million are no, dollar you know, arm. Sorry. That's a yeah. million dollar arm. Yeah. The movie that nobody saw. Yeah. Uh, but this it. movie <laughs> isn't about white saviors or anything like that. Although it is about like, um, you know, kind of middle class saviors, which I think is more of probably something that's more realistic in a way, right? Because, um, people of means who can afford to help out, uh, being able to do that. That's, that's not like a, I don't think that's as cloying as some of these other movies. Um, but yeah, great cast. Uh, David Doyello is in here, Lupita Nyong'o, and a, a great young actress um, playing the lead, Medina Nalwanga. And just, it's a lovely story. It's it's about hope 
and about like trying to find your worth, you know, in a world where you don't really have much of an education or schooling or anything. It's beautiful. And like every Mira Nair film, um, there's a lot of great family dynamics. I think that's something a lot of these movies miss out, right? Like if, uh, if a young poor girl starts to do really well and starts to expect more from her life, what does her mother think of that? You know, like, does that girl even fit in with the family anymore? And I think a lot of these movies don't even deal with those dynamics. And this one does. And it's, it's just great. So definitely check it out. Uh, it's like, it's on demand right now. It's not for rent yet, but it's Disney movies are always expensive. It'll I think be it is out, worth uh, on digital bucks. and Blu-ray on January 31st. Yeah, uh, if you're waiting for you that. You can but spend it's... 20 bucks right now and get it on iTunes, and I think yeah. it's worth that. That's Queen of Cotway, and I have heard great things about this movie. Uh, Mira Nair is a talented director. Uh, bummer this did not get a better box office reception. It only made $10 million, which is probably not what Disney is hoping mm-hmm. for. I think um, there, there's a lot about the strategy of how they released this movie that didn't yeah, didn't yeah. quite work out. Well, that's Queen of Cotway, uh, and yeah, uh, I plan to check it out because I am a sucker for uh, Disney sports films. So Yes. Uh, Jeff, know. you saw Million Dollar Arm. How was that movie? Uh, it's a Disney sports film. I mean, it's it's adorable, <laughs> and the kids are are sweet and charming, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, the best part of it I, for me is um, uh, what is his name? Uh, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin as this like crotchety old uh, baseball scout. I just I love Alan Arkin in anything, and he's he's so great as like this you know cantankerous uh, older dude who who finds these kids and is blown away by how awesome they are uh but yeah it's you know it's a feel good disney sports movie all right well jeff you've been watching something this week that we actually we actually never reviewed this on the show uh but i i was thinking we would and uh never came to pass but what is the movie you saw uh, well, it's, you know, it's award season here in Los Angeles, which means, uh, because I'm a SAG member, I get screeners. So, uh, I watched the girl on the train because Emily Blunt is up for a SAG award and, uh, my wife had read the book, so she was keen to watch it. So we, mm-hmm. we sat down to watch uh, the girl on the train. Did either of you see this? No, I didn't see it, but I read the book and oh. uh, not, not so into the book. Yeah, my my wife liked the book, but uh, neither of us. The liked ending the movie. is terrible. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's strange because uh, there's a lot of talent in this movie, and uh, they're really acting their butts off. They're just act. I mean, I understand why Emily Blood is nominated. She is just acting, full acting. It's everything she she has is brought to bear. And it's one of those situations where, like, the the approach outstrips the material. You know what I mean? Like, th- this is just a pulpy story, but it's handled in a way that it's like this literary, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> thing. You know, it's yeah. um, yeah, it's it's, it's an airport tr- novel. That's, that's right. really all it is. Yeah. It's treated like Manchester by the Sea, but it's it's really just yeah, it's just a pulpy you know thriller. Uh, and as a thriller, it's not that good. Uh, and it's, it's a bunch of, about a bunch of terrible people who are sort of terrible to each other and particularly the men in this movie. I mean, I understand why this movie is sort of a female, uh, you know, uh, rah, rah movie because the, the men in this movie are just awful, <laughs> just awful humans. And it, mm-hmm. it, I think every cliche thing that a woman would hate a man to do men do in this movie. Um, and it's it's dark. I mean, Emily Blunt's character is this just blackout drunk, 
and throughout the movie. And she, I mean, I understand why she's getting a lot of praise. Like she's willing to go there and uh, they, she looks awful throughout it. They make her ruddy and, and just her skin is bad and she just looks – she looks like that drunk that you pass in the alley and feel bad for. Like she looks awful in this movie and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, but she's the hero, right? <laughs> she's like, we're like, mm-hmm. we're supposed to feel bad for this. Um, I mean, obviously she has problems, but the idea would be that she's, you know, continuing to black out drunk and not remember things. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you could really just start with this, with the, uh, you know, work the program. Um, but anyway, that sounds very callous of me. I don't mean that to be the case, but <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying that it's hard to feel sympathy. Well, her, for her life is not great. Is the thing right? Like this is a so the book set it up so that you know she is in a very, very, very low point, and I think the drunkenness is understandable. Uh, but yeah, this the book tried really hard to be Gone Girl, like tried I think in many ways, and I think they were just kind of trying to re- recapture that success for the movie too. Yeah. It. It. Yeah. And I did not uh, – I sat through the whole thing is the best I can say about it. <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah, it is it, – it's it's a very, very pulpy sort of bad mystery that mm-hmm. uh, I – you know, two-thirds of the way through, I was like, oh, well, this is the way that's going to end. And of Well, course, you it, know it's bad because even the, the big reveal of the mystery is is completely unsurprising. It is exactly who you – like, yeah, what you yeah. would expect basically. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. Uh, Girl on the Train got a ton of buzz going into 2016. Uh, it was a best-selling book. It had some great talent behind the movie, uh, but apparently the movie did not live up to its pedigree, so that's a bummer. Uh, no, it sounds like it did, actually. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, wow. You guys yeah. are so so harsh on Girl on the Train. Wait, wait till cool. you read it, Dave, or see it. All right. Uh, well, maybe I'll watch just like the ending just to see what that, that twist is. Mm. He will definitely no watch it there's before no he watches Broken Flowers. So. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Or Firefly or yeah, anything. No, no but I think that's true probably, <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of what we've been watching. Uh, and I want to read an email that we received at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, and this is going to lead us into our next segment. But, yeah, this email comes in. We talked about documentaries last week. I went on this huge rant about – uh, you know, people saying that we should not include documentaries in our top 10 of the year list. Uh, and someone wrote in about it who has some personal experience with this matter. Uh, this email comes in from David Farrier, who is the co-director of the film Tickled, which was on my top 10 of uh, 2016. David writes in, longtime listener, first-time emailer, I really enjoyed your top 10 list and feel Jeff's pain at leaving one of his favorite movies off the list. I'm very glad he raised Captain Fantastic because it reminded me it's a movie I still have to see. So good job, Jeff. Yay. I just wanted to write in about a comment some listeners made about how documentaries shouldn't be on top 10 lists. It was interesting to me because I ran into a bit of this attitude towards documentaries when I toured Tickled, the movie that David loved and Jeff hated with a passion. I didn't hate uh, it, David. I didn't hate it with a passion. Oh, around, America, around America and the UK last year. Basically, I found sometimes that when I talked to people afterwards or just people in general in the US, this comment would come up that they don't normally watch documentaries. Maybe some of these people accidentally walked into Tickled thinking it was a thriller or an erotic film or something. But I kept bumping into people that were really surprised they just watched the documentary. Like it was a novel thing they'd just done. My theory is that there's a small number of people out there that think documentaries sort of involve someone hitting record on a camera and then cutting an in point and an out point, adding a bit of music and popping it out 
resulting in a boring sort of home movie experience. While I imagine making a documentary is a very different experience to, say, Guardians of the Galaxy, they still require everything a narrative film needs. Strong visual images, storytelling, characters, music, as well as a myriad of emotions while making it. Frustration, fear, joy, screaming, and crying. Not to mention uh, that all that post stuff, too. Grading, mixing, and an insanely long list of credits that remind you of how many talented people are actually involved in any kind of film. So that comment from someone that specifically said documentaries should be excluded because they can be made by one person made me smile. It's just interesting to me how some people view documentary films. Looking forward to the next uh, 400 episodes, you lot. Uh, so that email comes from David from uh, the film Tickled. He directed that movie with Dylan Reef. And I thought that was a lovely articulation of no, definitely. what goes into making documentaries. Like, uh, I, I guess I didn't address that because I just – it, it was inconceivable, inconceivable to me that someone could watch uh, a documentary like Tickled or like O.J. Made in America and not believe that tons of work went into creating that film or mm-hmm. those films. Although uh, it's uh, – I mean I, I guess the thing is I, I just haven't heard too much of the idea that people – shouldn't consider it yeah i guess we, we live in our own little yeah. uh documentary liberal bubbles here yeah. where, <laughs> i don't even uh, watch that like i don't watch as many documentaries as you do dave like i'm pretty selective just because s- there are a lot of bad ones too there are a lot of ones that do the things you would expect like just point a camera at something and expect to make it interesting and no yeah there's work involved i think uh one other thing i wanted to address from last week's episode is that Documentaries uh, often don't get reviewed as main episodes in the slash film. Right, right, right. Uh, some people were saying you don't review them on main episodes, so why are you including them in your top ten list? And then my response was, well, uh, you know, we should do whatever we want on the top ten list. And some people say, well, hey, you know, the solution is review more documentaries in main episodes. And my response to that is twofold. <laughs> Firstly, uh, n- very few people would actually listen to those episodes. Like, I actually see the numbers, and yeah. uh, it, our numbers vary greatly depending on what movie we're reviewing. So a Suicide Squad or a Guardians of the Galaxy will be among our most downloaded episodes of the year. Mm-hmm. And if we were to review Wiener or something like that, uh, it would get way fewer downloads. And not only that, but uh, in general, we review movies that people can go see. You know, we yeah, review yeah. movies that are in wide release that it's kind of like a book club approach. Like everyone can go and see this movie that we're talking about this week. And uh, with documentaries, they're often not available. So uh, that you know, that's the only thing I wanted to say is that's the reason we don't do documentaries in the main show, and that's the reason I save them for the top ten. Is hey, these are movies I saw. We can't talk about them really during the year, but here they are. You should check them out. And even that little slice of like endorsement that I was trying to give to them was being encroached upon by people who didn't think they should be included as films, which is why I got so upset <laughs> last week. So yeah. Uh, so just wanted to mention that. And, can, I, uh, can, yeah. can I present an, an alternate view of 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 what uh, David may be referring to? maybe talking about present jeff <laughs> and and again i feel very bad that that i talk <laughs> negatively about his film and he listens so religiously to our show i i i'm sorry david but um i will i think something a little bit different is happening may and you know it, it's not mutually exclusive right i do think people don't understand how these films are made but i also feel like there's this vestigial interpretation of what a documentary is that Sticks around from like, you know, mm-hmm. seventh grade when you have to watch the, the movie about, right. uh, cheetahs on the plains or whatever. I think there's this weird feeling of like, oh, I have to learn something. Documentaries are about learning something. I don't want to learn when I watch a movie. Ugh, gross. Well, ah. I think 
there is this feeling that all documentaries, just from the name, are from a very specific school, and that school is school. (laughs) And it's wordplay, Jeffrey. (laughs) Thank you. And it is, uh, it is for one purpose, and that is to be dry and and to teach. You know, and I think that um, mm-hmm. people who aren't exposed to great documentaries like Tickled that actually tell you a story and take you on a journey, uh, even if I was, you know, dissatisfied with the journey ended, it certainly was a, a thrilling journey to 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 go on. And I and so many of the modern documentaries are that and aren't about just, you know teaching you a subject, which I think that people, I think people think it's all National Geographic. And, you know, I think that's in the same way that I run into, uh, you know, I'm such a board game fan. And, you know, when I say I'm into board games, people go, oh, Monopoly and Clue. And it's like, no, 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 that's not the definition anymore. And I, th- I think that re- that is the same kind of phenomenon happening with, with documentaries. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. But even those crappy documentaries you saw in school took a lot of work. That's the other thing. <laughs> that's the only no, thing no, that... they do. But I, I think pe- <laughs> the reason people don't appreciate them or don't consider them to be um, worthwhile or, or they don't seek them out. They don't want to, yeah. they don't pay attention. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Cause they have I those emotions think... associated with it from, well, they right. don't expect yeah. them to be entertaining yeah. either. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. whereas something like tickled, I think genuinely is, and maybe people saw that trailer, which is a genuinely great trailer for that film. And they expected a thriller and not like, Oh, it's actually real life. Yeah. I mean, I think like what, what kind of, in my mind, for, for me personally, in my like life journey, ushered in the modern age of documentaries, uh, was The King of Kong in 2007. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that was the, the first movie I saw where I was like, oh my gosh, what an incredible Murder Ball, man. Murder Ball uh, was, Murder Ball was good too. That, yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it was a, it was mm-hmm. such an engrossing narrative. Uh, anyway. Great film, King of Kong. Yes. Uh, another documentary that is, is very fun. Also, I liked in David Ferrier's email how some people went into Tickled expecting an erotic film. I want to interview, <laughs> I want to interview a before and after of a patron who goes to see Tickled expecting an erotic film and sees that movie instead. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Uh, well, thanks to David for writing in. And Jeff, very good observation. I think that's, that's spot on. I'm not sure how many people actually feel that way, but it feels very plausible to me. Uh, and uh, David Ferrier also wrote a PS. That's going to bring us to our next segment, the Slash Film Court. So David Ferrier in his email wrote a PS uh, and he writes the following. If you're ever at a loose end with a slash film court, I'm wondering what your policy is on people with long, restless legs. Often at the cinema, I get very restless legs and I feel the need to stretch them out. What is your policy on resting your feet on the chair in front of you? I want to, but am mostly scared. Did you think he has restless feet because of that tickling that he had to endure? While Perhaps. <laughs> Related to this point, once I was sitting in the cinema and felt something bump my right elbow, I looked down to see a man's large, hairy toe poking in from behind. I Great. looked around in disgust to see a man sitting very low and quite comfortable in his seat. His legs splayed out, each non-shoe-wearing foot nestled up in the gaps between the seats in front of him. What is your cinema policy in regards to the legs and the related items, feet and toes? No! Well, that's two no. separate issues. That's two yeah. big, 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 big separate <laughs> issues because the removal of shoes is, in the theater is never, never okay. 
Yeah, never. But you, okay. The only reason you'd remove it is to put your feet somewhere because you don't want to nah, put your bare some feet. People might remove like, it. You never know what kind of really crazies you see in the theater. They just remove it for fun. Every time I've seen the f- uh, the shoe removal, it's because they're putting their feet up. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of shoe removal, mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. do it. Sure, it's it's, yeah. it's gross. Uh, but also in terms of resting your seat up, here's here's how I feel about movie theaters. Uh, when it comes to putting your feet up or any of that action. It's kind of like the campground theory of uh, uh-huh. movie theaters. You want to leave it in better condition than when you came in. Have your feet or your shoes, also I should say. Also put out all the fires that you started. Yeah. Have your, <laughs> have your shoes ever uh, been on the bottom of a men's room floor? If so, you do not want to place them anywhere near yes. stuff that is permanent, you know, that yes. other people will need to come sit in later. Especially if it's near their head. Too, because a lot of the time it's not just like oh by your elbows. It's they're putting your feet up next to the top of the seat, yeah, which is disgusting. I have seen theater ushers like tell people not to do that. That's something they generally do, even around New York City. So that's nice. Uh, the other reason I feel strongly about this is that I was once kicked in the head by a guy who really <laughs> uh, he, he was just like really wanted to relax, you know, and uh, <laughs> so he said sorry, and I just like got up. I looked at him. He was an old dude too with his whole family. I was like, yeah, thanks, and I just. Moved a couple of seats down, very like purposefully. Um, but this in was a defense, theater. In his defense, Devendra, kicking you is very relaxing. <laughs> it's very relaxing, I know. Uh, but this is also one of those theaters where, like, uh, you know, you have the main uh, level where you walk in, and then as this as you go up the rows, there are like stairs, and there's like a metal bar right between the ground level and the first row. And he had his his feet on the metal bar, which is fine. Until they lean over and kick somebody. So I actually am pro putting your feet on the metal bar, but, you know, don't freaking don't hit people. That's like a rare. Yeah, the metal bar, I think, is OK. That, yes. that seems like it's it's very yes. cleanable. Um, <laughs> very and cleanable. no one's sitting yeah. on that. Was, like uh, no one's sitting and touching that. That's, yeah, that's no, movie. no. Yeah. Those movie employees, I, I always see them wiping down the metal bar, Dave. <laughs> They're constantly cleaning it. They just stay fresh. They just stay fresh. Jeff, any closing opinion on this matter? Uh, listen, I agree with you guys. Uh, but I, there's a fellow I know, and I would never do that. But, uh, let's call him Bleff. Mm. <laughs> uh, Bleff, uh, I hate Bleff, by the way. He's a yeah, dick. Seriously. No yeah. one likes, listen, no one likes Bleff. <laughs> I do not endorse anything Bleff does, but Bluff I will Blodata, say, yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if there isn't anyone sitting in front of Bleff, Bleff has been known <laughs> to put his feet on the back of the, of the, uh, armrests. All right. And, well, uh, you know what? Bleff, Bleff really likes slouching in movies. <laughs> It's, it's very comfortable. Jeff and Bluff is the new Goofus and Gallant. Uh, I, would never, I would never. I would never. <laughs> Good thing we have reclining chairs. Like, that's the thing coming. That's my favorite new addition to theaters, guys. So, yeah, reclining chairs for all, everywhere. But I don't think if there's a person sitting in that seat, then you shouldn't mm-hmm. do it. I, I'm just really disappointed in David Ferrier, to be honest, for even, <laughs> for even writing this email. He has made a gripping documentary about all sorts of human perversion. And now needs to question another human perversion, which is dirtying up theater seats with your horrible shoes. This you is know? uh we need like a spin-off documentary about uh leg risers, the uh, the underground world of people who just put their legs up on everything. It goes deep, guys. It, it goes deep. deep. Yeah, yeah. Uh well anyway, thanks for writing in, David. Before we get to our review of hidden figures, gotta thank all the people that donated to the show. Bo Wilsey, who also was a subscriber uh, at the rate of $2 per month. Kevin S. from Menlo Park. Dino S. from Norway. Lisa H. from Edmonton, New Jersey. Longtime listener and donator. Stacey Rosetta. Ewan, Ewan McGrath. 
Anton Pizuda from the United Kingdom, Clement uh, Bourgoin, and Ian O'Toole from Western Australia. Thank you so much for your donations. Thanks also to Chantal Suave, Kate Rumsey, and Paul Wilson for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to help us defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show for you, go to SlashFilm.com, use the SlashFilmCast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page to make a donation to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for contributing. Uh, and let's get on to our review of Hidden Figures. Equilateral, trapezoid, isosceles, tetrahedron. I have never seen a mind like the one your daughter has. You have to see what she becomes. Come on! Move like that. Catherine! We all gonna end up unemployed riding around in this pile of junk. You're welcome to walk the 16 miles. All sit in the back of the bus. <laughs> it kiss me up. You have identification on? We're just on our way to work at NASA, sir. I had no idea they hired. There are quite a few women working in the space program. Hmm. You know what we're doing here? We're putting a human on top of a missile, shooting him into space, and it's never been done before. I need a mathematician that can look beyond the numbers. Math that doesn't yet exist. Before the Russians plant a flag on the damn moon. You have someone? That was from the trailer of Hidden Figures, the newest film by uh, director Theodore Melfi. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Based on a true story, a team of African-American women provide NASA with important mathematical data needed to launch the program's first successful space missions. This movie stars Taraji P. Henson as Katherine Johnson, Octavia Spencer as Dorothy Vaughn, and Janelle Monet as Mary Jackson. Uh, and Devendra, this is a movie that you'd seen quite a while. You've seen this twice, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen this twice. Uh, so you clearly love the movie. What is it that you love so much about Hidden Figures? This movie is phenomenal, guys. Like, l- let me let me just say this straight up because this is portraying and telling us about a very important group of women who were fundamental to our space program and that nobody nobody talks about. Most people don't even know about. These aren't the things you hear about, right? When you see, when you hear about space stories or you see films about the great NASA space program, thinking like Apollo 13 or the right stuff or something. And it's usually white dudes, you know, in, in offices or scientists or engineers or the big, like athletic astronauts. Like it, it it's a very much a white dude story. And I think this just shows us the other side of it, uh, the, the other side of our space program. And it's a really necessary story too, because, um, I think for a lot of kids growing up, they may not see themselves in jobs where they're doing a lot of math or dealing with a lot of computing and things like that. And this is a reminder that, hey, by the way, this this happened many, many years ago. They were really important uh, to our space program and to, you know, the space race in general. And I think that's something important to acknowledge. Um, this movie uh, has some issues that I think are endemic to a lot of like biopics and historical films like this. Uh, it starts off... In a, with a really, really rapid fire, like, oh, this is, this is Katherine Johnson. She's a genius at math, uh, going through her childhood, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I think that's kind of messy. Uh, there are some sentimental points where, you know, movies like this just kind of are. Um, but what I love about this movie, guys, uh, first of all, great actresses all around, great performances. Um, this movie gets the subtle indignities of racism down really, really well. And that's something we don't typically see. Right. The idea and, that and um, some not so subtle ones I and not say. some some not so subtle ones, but it's really the, the subtle ones that I I'm surprised by. Like, oh, by the way, like we've we've read about segregated bathrooms. Right. But the the practical 
implementation, right? The, what that meant for the people who had to live in that environment, for example, having to run like a quarter mile, if you ever had to use the bathroom, and then your bosses get mad at you because you're like out, you know, a little longer than everybody else. Um, th- those are the sort of things that I think are important. The idea that um, you may refer to a superior as like Mrs. So-and-so, and they just call you by your first name. And that may not seem like an indignity to them, uh, but it perpetuates the idea that, oh, they are more valuable and more important than you are. Uh, what I love about this movie is that, first of all, yeah, the cast is great all around, uh, but it also puts a lot of actors that are normally likable, um, like Jim Parsons. We, we know him as the lovable nerd from, you know, Big Bang Theory. They cast them in these roles where they are either, uh, they are definitely a part of the problem, right? They're part of the system that keeps people down in many ways, because they want to perpetuate the world as it is. So I am surprised that this movie had people like that and Kirsten Dunst in roles where they were basically just being, you know, systematic racists, uh, in a way. Like, they're, they're, through their actions, they kept people down, even if they didn't think they were generally racist. And the movie confronts that and talks about that. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there are some redemptive arcs there. But it's not pure, it's not like, oh, all of a sudden they're all better. It's more like they've reached a point where they realize, oh, these people are humans too. And, uh, maybe I should acknowledge them as a fellow human being. Uh, yeah. So I've seen it twice. Uh, I saw it a second time with my wife, uh, who also loved it because she works in STEM and things like that. Uh, yeah. It's, this is an important movie. And I can understand why it's been so popular. Um, because it's, it, it beats Star Wars, guys, because this <laughs> is, this is our real Star Wars. This is like how we did it. Through the help of these women, uh, there's one point in this movie, um, not not much of a spoiler, but there's one point where um, they're relying on an IBM machine for calculations, right? And uh, one of the astronauts, I forget, I forget which one it was. Um, which astronaut was it? One of the astronauts was asking. Um, John they, Glenn, they, I think. Is it what... may have been John Glenn. Yes, uh, but they were asking like uh, there were some anomalies with the calculations, and he's just like, "Can I have the girl check it?" You know, and that may seem like, oh, an invention for this movie. No, that actually happened. He didn't want to go into space until this one, you know, black mathematician made sure the machine's calculations were correct. And I think those are the sorts of things to, I don't know, remind kids of, especially as they're growing up in a world where they may not you know, see themselves reflected in the engineering and sciences. Jeff Kanata, your thoughts on Hidden Figures? Well, I find myself in a difficult position because I, uh, I, I love the message of this movie. I love the story of this movie. Uh, I just, uh, didn't love the movie. Um, I, I love that this tale is being told. I would much, much have preferred seeing a documentary about it. We talked so much about documentaries in this episode. I, I think my favorite part of this movie is the end credits where you get to see the photos of the real women. And Mm -hmm. I would much have preferred finding out, uh, seeing a documentary, seeing those real images, seeing interviews with people who may have been there. I would, I would love to have delved deep into the, the actual truth of the moment, seeing the real things rather than seeing a, um, a dramatization of it, but well, let me ask you this, Jave uh, or Jeff. Uh, would you think um, more Jave. people? Would you think more people would actually watch that documentary? Because it's everything we were talking about, right? The no, idea I, I, that documentaries I, aren't as accessible and 
people don't just rush out to the theater to see them too. Yeah. Right? I, I think that's, that's an astute point. And I think it's, it's definitely the thing that I like most about this movie. Right. I, I keep saying, mm-hmm. I like that this, I like the message of this movie. I like the story of this movie and I understand it needs to be told. And I understand people, it's probably a revelation for a lot of people that, that didn't think that this was a actually ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's wonderful that this tale is, is out there. I'm saying for me personally, as, as someone who watches movies, I would have much preferred to see a documentary, and I sure. understand that may have not have been as effective in getting the message out there, <clears throat> but sort of in reviewing the movie, I have to come to the point that I, I think this is a nice film. I think I, – I, I like the fact that it's three stories and not one. I think that's kind of cool, but you know, when I look at a movie like Apollo 13, the reason I love that movie is because it's a process movie less than a people movie, right? It's still a people movie, but this is completely a people movie and not a process movie. And that's okay. Like you see I some of the process though. It's really just like, did she do the math? Yes, she did the math. It, there's no, I'm not inside the process of right, what, right, right. what that is, you right. know, like I don't have any understanding of, it's like, did she do the equations? Yes, she did the equations. Okay. And there's even, there's even like an Apollo 13 mini film stuck on at the end. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's particularly interesting or well, well done. Um, I loved seeing the lives of these people, but again, like the true story of, of her romance, uh, may be just as storybook as it is in this film, but there didn't ever seem to be any, it just, it just felt very pre- presented to me like, Oh, she met a man. They fell in love. They were, had a really nice relationship. It, it there, I was not brought through this journey in a dramatic way. It just sort of felt very presented. And I, in fact, I liked some of the other characters, uh, more than, than uh, names. All Catherine the Johnson. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the uh, mm-hmm. the one that started the the lab and learned Fortran, like Dorothy she, Octavia yeah, Spencer playing Dorothy yeah. Vaughn. Yeah, Dorothy yeah. Vaughn. That's the name I was. I, I will say, like, I love the casting of this movie. I don't think Taraj P Henson was the best choice for Katherine Johnson, just because her like the role she typically takes. Like, she's a very uh, normally very expressive actress. So playing a character who's essentially, you know, an introverted math genius, it's, it feels a little off. It doesn't Just necessarily I, play to her strengths. You're saying she's, yeah, obviously I, I don't a, think so. Incredibly talented, but that, that's the, not necessarily what you think. I think Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet actually both fit into their roles much better. The, the, I have a perfect example to try to illustrate what I'm saying. And, and it comes down to honestly, the kinds of movie that I prefer. And again, I, I, I appreciate the, the story here, but there's a moment where, uh, she walks into the computer and she's mm-hmm. like, Oh, this is in the wrong place. And she changes it and fixes it. Right. That's the sort of Disney storybook version of, of that. Like we have no context about why that was wrong or what that was doing. There's no specifics there. It's just like, Oh, she, she's smart enough to see. The thing was wrong, and that's all the movie cares about is that she was smart, and that's but the context—it's—it's it's not just that she was smart, right? The context of that whole situation. Not to spoil too much of the movie, though, is one her recognizing that oh, this thing will take my job. Two, realizing that hey, maybe I should learn about this thing. Uh, three, going to the library, being basically kicked out of the library because the book isn't in her section, so she had to steal the book to learn it, and then yeah, learning it separately. So yeah. 
that's the context for her knowing that that particular bit may be wrong. So, right. so yeah. uh, I agreed with what Devendra says that there mm-hmm. are some things that the movie gets right, but I also agree with Jeff that uh, that you don't really get the context in the way that you would with other films. That being said, this is a subject matter that is inherently challenging mm-hmm. to make thrilling on screen. Like, sure. okay, they could teach you how Fortran works, but it would take another two hours and it wouldn't be terribly interesting, you know, for, for uh, yeah. a narrative film. And so I think it's more of a challenge of the subject matter than it is like the film failing at showing you that. Now, that being said, Jeff, I agree with your, your overall point which is that uh, – I, I mean I think I'm reminded of what Aaron Sorkin said about his movie Steve Jobs, uh, which featured another uh, character slash person named Andy Hertzfeld in that movie played by Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh Andy Hertzfeld left a screening of Steve Jobs and said to Aaron Sorkin, uh, this is unbelievable. None of that happened, but it's all true. <laughs> and uh you know he was be- he was obviously exaggerating because some of that stuff happened right in the Steve yes, Jobs movie yes. but none of it really happened as it was was depicted in the movie and uh that's how i feel about hidden figures watching but it but that's a far more heightened film right that's sure, a film that's sure, essentially sure, but, a play. but but as yeah. i was watching this movie i just kept thinking to myself firstly let me just say overall i like the movie <laughs> i like the movie because uh we were talking about under underdog sports movies this is kind of an underdog sports movie yes. in the sense that it's an underdog movie it's an underdog movie you know about people who aren't represented uh and who people didn't even know about and and know about their contributions now being brought to the center they're not it, taught in schools yeah things like that yeah. it's so important uh, you know in our time like uh, like you said about STEM, like we need more people involved in STEM education. We have um, a uh, president-elect right now who uh, has in the past tweeted – I'm not just making – you know, yep. this is not propaganda. Yep. He has tweeted out in the past he believes global warming is a uh, hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. Uh, and who, like whose belief in other scientific principles, uh, vaccinations, for instance, like he's bringing in an, uh, a notorious anti-vaccine person to uh, mm-hmm. help run things. You know, like th- th- these these are not uh, abstractions. Like we have a president elect who uh, does not value the role of, si- uh, of yeah. science, and so uh, and does not value, <laughs> to, to put it lightly, the role of diversity yeah. in bringing. Exactly. Uh, a lot of skills and important perspectives uh, to bear on our, it's, the biggest it's problems facing really, humanity. So it's really strange to watch a movie where science and math and technology in general are so there's such a focus on it and such a like oh they know what they're doing and to see that in a world where people can't even acknowledge um, you know scientific consensus on global warming or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It is a yeah, weird totally. whiplash we're going through. Totally, totally. So uh, I just want to say like this movie is more important mm-hmm. than ever and uh, like you said Devendra I think a lot of people will see this movie. Hopefully a lot of people will see this movie of all colors and realize yeah. hey that they can uh, overcome uh, any institutional barriers that are facing them and that skill will eventually be the thing that's most important. Uh, and certainly by the box office take of this movie, it's resonating with a lot of people. So yes, I yes. value this movie greatly. I enjoyed the movie. It really did work on me. That being said, uh, I did feel it was incredibly manipulative. And I also felt like it, it you know, it, it, at no point watching this movie did I feel like, oh, yeah, that must have happened exactly like that. You know? It just felt like uh, a lot of it was engineered, created, right, I right. should say, uh, to but fit. Don't, you to don't, fit you the don't co- know exactly. 
That's the thing. Like the John Glenn thing. No, feels I, like well, the yeah, most... sure, sure. That might have been true, but like yeah. these people. But did that, not... that's what I'm saying, though. The John Glenn, like some of the most heightened situations in this film, right, seem like this is a movie setup, right? Well, John I'm, Glenn. I'm telling not... you, I've done research into this, and yeah. they like uh, it didn't happen in the way it was depicted in the film. Like these people didn't, where they weren't all like friends with each other. Their achievements yeah, didn't all happen yeah. at exactly the same time, you know. And the movie condenses that because it's a movie, and that's fine. But I'm that's just saying fine. that. I'm just saying that, like, I felt that, you know, I felt like, hey, this is a movie that's like kind of rearranging all these events and making it all seem more dramatic and timing this out correctly and compositing different people into single people to serve the needs of a narrative film. And uh, I felt it more acutely in this movie, uh, perhaps than I did with other films. Uh, but despite that, I still really yeah. enjoyed it, got a lot out of it. I That's kind of how every every movie of this respect, you know. You're right, Devendra. A lot of movies do that. And I'm just saying I felt it particularly acutely with this movie. And uh, maybe I feel it very acutely with other films as well. But uh, it just uh, – I could feel, you know, the, the narrative impulses at play. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it kind of bothered me a little. And it kind of took away from the film for me. I, I get that. But let me ask you guys this. Do you feel like you know more about – the history of the space program after seeing this movie do you feel more informed totally yes but not as much as i would have liked (laughs) (laughs) that's uh, well what you're saying too jeff is kind of interesting i mean i guess i try to judge the movies as they are because yes you could you could say that to any dramatized film about a historical event yes a documentary will always be more informative and better and yada 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 it may not be more entertaining it may not be the best vehicle to tell that story to you know certain audiences as well so yeah i think there's a lot more going on there but the fact that you guys feel more informed by it the fact that i i went to a screening here in new york and it was still uh at the union square theater it was like mostly a white audience but there were definitely some like uh black and brown people there too and those little moments in this movie where the characters actually speak up for themselves i think really resonated you could tell it resonated with a certain crowd and uh I, I, I noticed those situations too, right? There's a point where um, Dorothy Vaughn, uh, she's talking with Kirsten Dunst's character, who is her superior, right? Her supervisor. Dorothy Vaughn's trying to get um, kind of a raise because she's doing the work of the manager but not being recognized for it. At one point, Kirsten Dunst is, says, like, you know, I have nothing against you guys. And Dorothy Vaughn says, I know you may think that. <laughs> or I, I'm yeah. sure you believe yeah. that. I I'm sure you believe that. Something yeah. like that. And there's just like through the eyes, just like, oh, shit. <laughs> because that is that is something, to guys, that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people of color may feel that they want to tell their superiors in terms of how they're managed and how they're handled. But, but um, that's the thing. Like, yeah. okay, maybe it actually did happen that way, but I just don't believe that it actually I mean, happened that way like that's okay that's fine it, it we don't like, have a there, window there, into the past to know exactly how that sure, conversation sure. i mean there's a but, scene where uh taraji p henson's character uh katherine johnson basically tells off the entire office yes, the entire and office. i just uh, you, you know yep. like I, I just couldn't imagine that that was how it really played out and maybe, maybe it didn't really play out that way <laughs> i'm sure yeah but yeah like it, it was an incredibly satisfying well-acted scene and I, I'm sure, I enjoyed I think watching it. Was it was dramatically earned, even if it's not historically. Oh, totally, accurate. totally dramatically earned. But I just like, yeah. would it really have played out that way? Would it really <laughs> have happened like that way with, uh, and, and you know, uh, I, I was listening to Film Spotting SVU, uh, a podcast I really like, and they were talking about this movie. And there's a scene in the movie where Kevin Costner's character, Al Harrison, discovers yep. racism. 
Yep. Like he, he discovers what is this racism going on at NASA? Like how, I I I am appalled and shocked. Yes. Uh and it's just it's okay. It's exactly what I thought it would be, which is very, you know, heavy-handed and very kind of obvious and at the same time it still worked on me. <laughs> yeah. Know? That, that, like, I think that's I, it. It it yeah. still it still was like, okay, that was exactly how I thought it would play out and it's very obvious and has this very clear message and it's <laughs> very preachy, but still I was taken by it. So Yeah. And that's how I feel Kevin about Kastner's the whole movie. Character that's how I feel about not, the whole movie. Yeah. Right. Kevin Costner's character, not based on a real person, probably a, you know, an amalgamation yep. of several people. Um, but it's more about like what he's going through, right? Because you can imagine a lot of, you know, white superiors in that situation who may not know the all the things everyone else has to deal with. Because they're maybe through no fault of their own. It's because they're so focused on getting people into freaking space. Uh, but the people, you know, to get people into space, you have to look at the people who are working for you and make sure that they're, they can actually, you know, work, that they can actually use the bathroom. So this is also an interesting history of NASA too, because NASA always touts themselves as early adopters of, uh, you know, workforce diversity, things like that, right? The, the computer program started in World War II because the human computer program, uh, because we needed people who were good at math. And at that point, it's like, okay, guys, like we, we can't really just judge people based on the color of skin. We just got to get like people good at math, no matter the color of their skin. Uh, but even with a diversity initiative like that, there are still those indignities, um, you know, that they have to deal with, like the, like the separate coffee, you know, maker, things like that. So yeah, I, I understand like that big, uh, Catherine Johnson scene, definitely overly dramatic, definitely like it tonally doesn't fit with the rest of the movie too. But it's earned. Like all the things she brings up are things oh, yeah, that have totally, happened and that totally she's had earned. to deal with. And the movie shows that. So I think it gives you enough. Like it gives you the ammunition for that like explosion. Agreed with you, Devendra. But I, yeah, I, I think my I side more with Jeff on this movie. I think the movie is fine. I love the message of the movie. I'm glad the movie is doing so well. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Same. just from a movie per, like a, a the craft perspective, I just like oh, it feels a little bit too neat. You know, it feels yes, a little bit too convenient. Perfect, yeah, yeah. perfect way to put it. I yeah. think, yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. At the end of the day, is this a Disney film? I think, or no, it's I, it's I, definitely I a big studio film. So it has those trappings. For me, the first, like the opening act, that's the big problem. The whole Catherine Johnson flashback. It feels like they were trying to do more, or they were forced to put that in. Uh, the movie would have been stronger if it just started with them on the side of the road. Which, by the way, what kind of a it's a little preachy, but what a great image, right? Like the cop like starts out being like kind of an asshole. And he's like, oh, oh, yeah, you're trying to get us into space. So let me give you a ride. And the image of them just like speeding down after a police car. I think that's what gets me about this movie, right? It's a lot of images and things we've never seen before, um, but which sends a certain amount of a message, I guess. Well, I, I actually love the kind of costume design uh, mm-hmm. of the movie in the sense that you have – uh, the Katherine Johnson character in a room full of white dudes, all of whom are wearing the exact same clothes. Yep. And she's often wearing like a colorful suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like the, uh, just visually, you can, she's easily separable from everyone else. Uh, and, uh, sets herself apart in, in many ways, like visually as well as in her intellect. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that it was very striking every single day. Like the movie uses that image a lot and uh, I found it very effective. So, yeah. I also want to say Janelle Monet, let's just put her in everything because she is so her, great. Yeah. I'm, her movie career is, uh, is, is certainly blossoming. And, uh, mm-hmm. here with her Moonlight co-star, Mahershala Ali, uh, mm-hmm. as well. 
in this movie. So yeah, I, he didn't have much to do other than be like the guy who may not understand that women could be good at math, and like he had to be taught a little bit of a lesson. But Every, everyone just, had like, to be taught a lesson in this yeah. movie, and they even all, in like a purely romantic role, they all were taught. Is nice to see because that, that this is this where 2016 was that dude's year, and I'm glad that he's finally being recognized too. All right. Uh, well, I think that's going to bring us to our end of our review of Hidden Figures. Uh, stay tuned for some After Dark action, uh, but uh, that's the Slash Filmcast for this week. Uh, you can find more of our episodes at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. And music for our podcast comes from AdamWarrock.com. Uh, our Slash Film Court theme song was written by SimonMHarris.com. In the meantime, Jeff Kanata, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I have a video game podcast called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And if you're into science, I have a science comedy show, Making Science Palatable. We talk about science stories every week, only 20-minute episodes, but I guarantee you'll learn something and maybe have a laugh. Uh, that's at wehaveconcerns.com. How about you, Devendra? I'm at Devendra on Twitter, and I write about techandgadget.com. Also, check out my coverage of the Nintendo Switch over there. All right, and you can find uh, my work at my newly relaunched blog, DaveChen.net. Uh, check out all of my postings there. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the After Dark. But uh, thanks for tuning into the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. Next week, we'll be reviewing Split, the new film by M. Night Shyamalan. Also based on a true story. Yeah, totally. <laughs> based on a, a, a movie called Identity, actually? No. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, all right, we'll get to that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you guys. Uh, this is the end of the Slash Filmcast. We're out. He watched the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad. It's the Slash Filmcast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark. Uh, this is a time where we just talk about whatever happens to come to mind, random thoughts, assorted nothings, you know, whatever we want to discuss. And uh, before Devendra goes, Devendra's got to go. He's got family over at his house. But uh, Devendra, you had a chance to play the Nintendo Switch this yes. week. The newest uh, console from Nintendo. And uh, I think you were really excited about this. Like You played it. You, you had a good impression of it. Yeah, I, I think I did, and it wasn't only, it wasn't until I came out of that event that I just saw tons of people like shitting on it, like just oh this looks dumb or why would I need this and things like that. Um, so just going back, like I am a Nintendo fanboy, just like how Jeff is a Marvel fanboy. Like I I I'm like Nintendo is in my blood. I just love it, and the company has made a lot of mistakes, and I can acknowledge that too. Like. Uh, the Wii was a big success for them. I love the GameCube, but I can understand why the GameCube didn't sell. The Wii U is a console I really enjoyed for certain games, but they totally missed the mark in terms of like how they, uh, how they got developers on board or failed to get developers on board. And they also completely missed the mark on what people wanted, right? The Wii U was all about, oh, well, tablets, tablets, right? <laughs> people like tablets. Um, and they didn't realize that the reason people like tablets is that you could take a big screen and just bring it anywhere. You know, you could bring it on the subway, you could bring it to, you know, to the park or something and have like a nicer gaming experience than you do on a phone. 
And that was a nice part of the Wii U, being able to take games uh, anywhere within the room of the Wii U base unit. Uh, but the range wasn't very good. So I know some people, uh, the main way they play the Wii U is just to take their Wii U base and put, you know bring it to a different room with them and then like set up in the bedroom and just play on the gamepad. And that's actually a pretty cool thing. It's just kind of inconvenient. So I like that Nintendo doubled down on the idea of pure portable gaming with the Switch. Um, based on what I saw, I saw um, Zelda. I saw ARMS, the new Splatoon. Uh, they look slightly better than they do in the Wii U. Not like, you know, up to modern console quality. But the ability to like, you know, be playing it in the living room, then snap on the uh, the controllers and just take it anywhere. I'm really looking forward to that because I don't have as much time these days for like TV or monitor based gaming. So that sort of thing will be really, really cool. I just hope, um, you know, I, I think people have to get their hands on it to really see the appeal there. So let me ask you a couple questions mm-hmm. real quick. Uh, the controllers are very tiny. Yes, right? they are. So yep. especially when, you know, one of the functionalities is that you take one half of them, just mm-hmm. one side, and use that as your own personal controller yeah. and somebody else takes the other side. I'm, ima- I'm imagining that's very tiny. But overall, do, do the controllers in your hand feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable at all? They feel pretty good. Um, like when I, they're I in heard the... using them one at a time. Like if you uh-huh. – yes. some, some games yes. require you to use just one of the halves. Yeah. And like it's like a it's like a standard NES classic controller, but like forty percent smaller. Much much smaller. Like that so is it's like, def- it's like not comfortable. Yeah, that bit is definitely not comfortable. Although there are, you know, from what we're seeing, there aren't many games that use that yet. That's more of like a last ditch. Oh, you bring your Switch somewhere and you want to like play something with your friend, right? Uh, right. I saw a game called Snipper Clips, uh, where you had the uh, the Switch just set up on a table. And you and a friend will grab one of the controllers and it's a puzzle game where you have to like cut each other, like cut yourselves into figures that fit into the puzzle. So it's a lot about communication and things like that. But for in, you know, for a small game like that, totally fine. I think even for Mario Kart, like you don't need that many buttons for Mario Kart. You know, you need accelerate and brakes and maybe a night, the, the hopping and the turning that that's kind of the important one. Giant button for the horn in the center of the horn controller. Like the exactly. Uh, there are top buttons on the controller too. Like there are buttons like hidden all around this thing. So that's kind of interesting. Um, when the Joy-Con controllers are on the grip, which is the big like blocky thing that'll come with the system, uh, they feel fine. Like the, the smaller action buttons aren't great, but the uh, analog sticks are good. Um, it, it, yeah, it all feels pretty solid for me. And the motion controls are pretty good too. Like, uh, for arms, you have to take out both controllers and kind of hold them sideways. Um, which is a new way of holding controllers, I think. But the tracking and even just playing that game, uh, which looks weird, it's like both a boxing game and kind of like a shooter. Uh, it it works. Like what we're seeing is like lots of new experiences with the Switch. So um, I have another question for you. Yeah. The the screen. How mm-hmm. does it compare to my iPhone? How does it compare to modern cell phone screens? Does it look as good? Because the Wii U gamepad screen yes. looks looks it's a bad like screen. Too. That's a yeah. bad screen. Uh, really low res. This screen, uh, I think it's. Uh, I don't have the exact. I think it's like six point five to six point seven, something like that. So it'll look. It's it's like a small tablet screen, basically. This it looks good, but we didn't get to see it in daylight, and that's usually the big test of a screen. Uh, has capacitive touch, so much you know simpler more smooth uh, touch access than the wii u controller it looks good i think that's kind of the screen actually makes the worst graphics of the games probably look a bit better uh compared to modern consoles right zelda looks a lot sharper on that screen than it does blown up to the tv uh so uh, at this point it's looking pretty good 
So I read Kyle Orland's take on mm-hmm. this at Ars Technica, and also you can read Devendra's take on it at Engadget, of course. Um, yeah, I didn't get and, to write much on it, but I'm in. I'm. I basically spent Friday morning doing videos, and our UK folks did the writing, so that worked out pretty well. Very cool. Um, but so I was really excited about this because I, I did not get a Wii U. I had a Nintendo Wii, didn't get the Wii U. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, maybe this the Nintendo Switch is going to be my entry back into the world of Nintendo hardware, but. I was pretty discouraged by the presentation. The pricing felt too high for me for mm-hmm. what you're getting. And Kyle Orland over at Ars Technica wrote an article about his impressions, and uh, I'm going to quote him here. Quote, more than the hardware, the dearth of software is the most worrying part of the Switch uh, pre-debut so far. Only five titles have been announced as ready for the system's March 3rd launch, a number that seems paltry compared to the 20 to 24 games that were ready for the launch of Wii U, Xbox One, and PS4. The Switch launch looks even worse when you know that two of its initials games, Skylanders, Imaginators, and Just Dance 2017, already came out for competing consoles late (laughs) last year. Uh, four more Switch titles will be available by the end of March, and three more have been announced for quote-unquote spring, and Nintendo says 80 games are in development, all told. That's not too heartening. When you consider that Sony said 140 PS4 titles were in development at E3 2013, many months before the system's launch, while Switch is roughly six weeks away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, end quote. That, you know, there. But, yeah, but yeah. but Zelda. But Zelda. <laughs> that, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, what, what else do you need? Uh, I, I think we can all tell that this is a rush job in a way by nintendo like they probably didn't have the time to court developers or get people on board as much as they would with the traditional console both sony and microsoft are doing half basically half step upgrades very small power bumps uh which you know devs have to do a little more work for but it's still basically the same thing the switch is entirely like you get to rethink how yeah, you're doing new, a lot new ar- of stuff new architecture and new like yeah uh, yeah gaming paradigms so uh, but it doesn't yeah. look good right now but I, I think based on what we see based on the hardware and based on like what i've seen from some of the games like mario kart in this thing splatoon on this thing um the first party games on nintendo consoles are always strong i think they're going to get more we uh third party support down the line just because of what this thing can do Kyle also writes that uh, the more quote the more I think about it the more I think Nintendo should have released a cheaper portable only edition of the Switch. Doing so re- would reduce the asking price and highlights the system's strengths. But doing so would also concede. Yeah, (laughs) but doing so would also concede an essential truth. The Nintendo has made a great portable console that happens to connect to your TV rather than a great TV console that happens Mm -hmm. to be portable. End quote. So, uh, you are one of the optimists on this one, Devendra. Uh, I, I feel good. It, everything I'm reading makes me feel like this might be Nintendo's last hardware system. But uh, anyway, uh, check out Devendra's uh, commentary and coverage and videos over at Engadget. People uh, said that about the GameCube. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't know if you they, know they this, Jeff, like but online. the GameCube introduced a radical new innovation, a handle that you can connect to the box. <laughs> yeah, I anyway. love that handle. It was really useful during college because I had to move that thing around a lot of rooms. Um, this may be Nintendo's last home console system. Maybe maybe that's more yeah. accurate. Right? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, uh, well, Devinder, we have much more to discuss, but uh, you got to go. Yes. Uh, so, and actually, some of these emails involve you. So maybe listen to this segment afterwards. Okay. Uh, and then I'll shout at my, you yeah. know, iPod, and then uh, then good, you'll hear it. A good idea, Devendra. Yes. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week for Split. Later, guys. Bye. Bye. All right, Jeff. Uh, a bunch more things to talk. Dave, about. I want to leave when the emails criticize me. I don't want to be around. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, before we get to emails about silence, uh, I, I do want to talk about a, a couple of random 
things uh, that uh, came to mind. Firstly, I saw this movie this week uh, that I didn't bring up during what we've been watching, but it's uh, Family Man, the Nicolas Cage movie. Oh, I love that movie. You love that movie? I mean, I have fondness for that movie. I don't love it. I, I have fondness for it. All right. Let me, let, me, let me drop some knowledge on you about Nicolas Cage's Family Man, directed by Brett Ratner. Right. Yeah. Who, who, in my opinion, has always been a competent director. Like his directing style has not lit the world on fire, but uh, sure. I think it gets a bad rap. I th- I'm pretty sure Peter Serretta from Slash Film offer, uh, uh, harbors some ill will against him, or, or thinks he's a hack. But uh, I've, I've always thought Brett Ratner's <laughs> talented. throw Peter under the bus. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like he's many times he's mentioned. Anyway, I think Brett Ratner's a talented guy. Uh, not like you know, not yeah. one of our best directors working today. But I, 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 there's very few times where I've seen a Brett Ratner film and thought that was very badly directed. I will say that there were some segments of this movie that I thought were badly directed. Um, so Family Man is a is a Nicolas Cage movie. And, you know, uh, this came out in 2000. So it is six, 17 years old at this point. And uh, I, I think – I'll read the plot summary from IMDb. Uh, Family Man is about uh, a fast-lane investment broker offered the opportunity to see how the other half lives, wakes up to find that his sports car and girlfriend have become a minivan and wife. So <laughs> Yeah, man. <laughs> that, that writes itself. So uh, essentially what happens is uh, Nicolas Cage – uh, in the opening scene of this movie, he and his college sweetheart, they're at an airport together, and he's about to go off on this, some internship or some job uh, for a year at an investment company in London. And she's like, hey, you know, I feel like if you leave, horrible things will happen to our relationship. And he says, hey, I love you, and that's gonna, not going to change if I'm away for a year. Cut to 13 years later. He's become an investment stockbroker who lives in a high-rise condo, mm. and uh, I, I, stakes were made. I, yeah, mistakes were made. You know, like he he doesn't have a family. Like he he goes through like meaningless relationships and has meaningless sex, and um, but he can buy whatever he wants, and uh, you know his life is good that way. And uh, in in the first twenty minutes of this movie, you have Ken Leung, who's a relatively well regarded uh, Asian actor, playing a convenience store salesman uh, or a convenience store clerk, talking in a heavy, thick Asian accent. So already, uh, I'm already like I'm already docking points of this movie. Then Don Cheadle shows up as a thug who tries to rob the convenience store, and uh, Don Cheadle plays the quintessential magical Negro in the sense that he is actually like an angel of some kind in this movie like it wasn't really clear what his role was but anyway nicholas cage intervenes in the convenience store robbery and as a result don Cheadle's character gives him a gift the ability to glimpse what his life would have been like if he had stayed or or not left and gone to london and and you know stayed with tealy and his character and they'd gotten married and had kids and i was totally on board with this film until the final scene of this movie <laughs> Do you remember what the final scene, Jeff? I do not. Okay, so... It has been 17 years since I saw this movie. So, so I'm going to give away the final scene of a family. Basically, um, you know, Nicolas Cage realizes, hey, uh, I can barely afford to... Uh, I can barely afford my existence in this other life that I have with Tia Leone, who plays Kate Reynolds. But, you know, like he finds out basically that there's a lot to like. In his life, like he has this, these wonderful children, he has this beautiful wife, uh, he has a life that is fine, you know, like his his life is, he's not like lighting the world on fire with his career, but he's uh, 
he's doing well uh, and he's doing okay. And he realizes there's so much value in that. You know, he falls in love with all these people. And then, right as he realizes how in love with them he are, uh, he is, uh, it's all ripped away from him. He wakes up again in his stockbroker life, right? Mm-hmm. And then tries to track down Tia Leone in real life, only to find that she has lived an entirely separate existence from him in the last 13 years. And the final scene of the movie is Tia Leone's moving, Tia Leone's character, Kate Reynolds, is moving to Paris for some job. She's not married. And he runs to the airport and basically starts telling her about this whole life that he experienced uh, through this Don Cheadle-granted vision, right? That, hey, we had kids. Th- we were married. We had kids together. Uh, and he starts talking about their kids. Like, you know, so-and-so is is precocious, but maybe that's just because she speaks her mind and blah, blah, blah. And, she, you know, she is so moved by this speech. Right. That, she doesn't think he's a crazy person. That, that she, they, they go and have a coffee and talk about their lives in the last 13 years and presumably, hopefully fall in love afterwards and, and have, you know, get married and he leaves the stockbroker life and they find true love once again. And my problem, Jeff, as you can probably tell with that is that is the rantings of an insane person, right? <laughs> like, right. if you, if you were at an airport and someone from 13 years ago came up to you and said, Hey, we had kids together and, and, uh, here, you know, they they were named, jo- you know, Joey and Jesse and blah, blah, blah. You would think, call the police, right? <laughs> Get a restraining order, right? Uh-huh. It's like that scene in Love Actually. You know what I'm talking about, Jeff? Yes. The cue card scene. Right. Where, uh, well, the this- cue card scene doesn't result in any, change of heart it's just like an expression of the things i always felt it, it is just the doings of an insane person right it's just that is what the key card scene is but every movie is the doings of an insane person that's why they're movies right? i guess i guess every have you never thought that no no no. but jeff 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 okay firstly you're bringing up a very good point which is shane black uh, i heard him talk about this when he wrote the nice guys right he said when you're watching a movie you're seeing the most important week of these people's lives right otherwise why would you make a movie out of it right is that what right. you're, you're well no more here? more along the lines of you know every thriller you've ever seen you know every jason Bourne type thriller where everybody is out to get you and they're trying to they're trying to kill you and you're you have to murder the 12 people in the in this convenience store to get away because the everyone's if if you saw a news report, you'd be like, "Oh my god, that's a terrible, awful person that needs to be arrested immediately." And there, you know, every movie where something supernatural happens, and oh my gosh, the demons are uh, infecting New York City, and I have to destroy the demons. The real version of that is an insane person thinks demons are infecting New York <laughs> and they're killing people, and but they need to be stopped and arrested immediately. Every movie where something well, every- okay, couple things. Firstly, you know, in in like movies like what is it, The Sixth Day or what? Not The Sixth Day. Um, what is that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? End of Days. <laughs> yeah, End of Days. <laughs> in movies like End of Days, he actually is fighting demons. Okay. Secondly, uh, people react reasonably to what is going on around them. Typically, in movies like that. Uh, and my, my beef with Love Actually, the cue card scene when so-and-so declares his love for Kira Knightley's character, is not that he's doing something crazy. It's that Kira Knightley reacts to it like, oh my gosh, that's so touching. Not oh, like, okay, oh well, my let me, gosh, let me you, this hypothetical. why are you a freaking psycho? Why didn't you tell me this before we got married? Well, that might be what, – what about this? What about – Why did you stalk me with your wedding video? You're, you're Tia Leone. <laughs> And you you were in love with this guy, and you've thought about him, but you moved on with your life. But he, there was always a part of you in the back of your head that 
wondered what might have been and wished that it could have you could have been together but he changed somehow and oh well I'm I, you know I'm moved on with my life and then he shows up one day and he says he validates all those things that you had in the back of your head that he's been thinking about you too in fact he has this entire fantasy of the of a life that you lived together and my god that's kind of exactly how I always thought that we could have if we had just stayed together we would have kids by now and it would have been beautiful and that, and that he thinks the same way maybe I will give him a a, a, a second chance. Well, I think that's obviously what the movie wants you to think. I guess you know this right. is. No, kind I, of my... I understand that it's insane rantings of a crazy person, <laughs> especially as delivered by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't think it's. There are. I'm, I'm just I, saying. I think that's what the movie wants you to think. I, I think that's. Uh, but but honestly, that is not how I, I in my personal life have found real life to actually work. You know. Oh, if you think that real life is depicted in movies, you are. I. You've been watching movies wrong. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, so I'm, I'm actually quite shocked to hear this coming from you, given your takedown of La La Land recently. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know. Well, that's because that movie, like, tricked me into thinking it was about real life <laughs> for a while. It just felt incongruous. I, I'm, I've said many times before that my entire childhood was ruined by uh by uh john hughes movies i mean that the idea that i could just be friends with the girl for for like two years until one day she realized i was the one she was meant for the whole time like that's what i thought was that's i thought relationships started is that you convinced them that you were you were not into them until one day you she turned around and realized oh my god those guys that I was in love with, they're not cool. You're the cool one because you've been my friend this whole time. I wasted so many years of my life in high school <laughs> trying I, to I, be friends. I think I guess uh, I, I guess when you get older, you start to uh, understand more how uh, romantic relationships depicted in movies differ from reality. And you also start to get more bitter about it, you know, at least for me. Well, that's yeah. what's, that's I mean, what's played out. Yeah, people rarely behave the way they behave in movies. And that's okay. I, I'm a, I'm an idealist. I like seeing uh, idealized versions of things, even if they, you know, rarely I, uh, play out in real life. Yeah, I, I get angry at them. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, Fair that's enough. your and my difference there. Um, why did you find yourself watching Family Man? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm always a kind of guy that's fascinated by like alternate realities. Uh, and by fascinated, I mean, you know, filled with regret about alternate realities. Uh, and this is a movie that like my dad, had recommended to me literally over a decade ago. And <laughs> I think it, it. it was on sale uh, on iTunes for like $5 or something. And so there's so, hope for all the movies that I recommend. Broken Flowers you'll see in about 10 years. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's oh right. my gosh, Jeff recommended this. It's on sale. Only, yeah, it's on sale. So, all right, so A, you know, uh, I'm in a very contemplative period of my life right now. B, my dad recommended it. C, it was on sale. It was the perfect storm of circumstances that impelled me to watch uh family man directed by brett ratner so anyway uh you're like uh you're like a beautiful <laughs> you're like a beautiful swan that has to be just in the right position place where all everything has to just line up just so for you to see a movie that's right, <laughs> that's right jeff uh all right we got to get to emails about silence the martin scorsese movie uh, you can always write us emails at slashfilmcast.gmail.com, and uh, these emails uh, will probably spoil silence. So if you haven't seen silence, you don't want to be spoiled, then you should tune out for the emails. But uh, we got a bunch of emails 
in our, in response, like we we Jeff, you and I thought the the movie took a pretty specific position mm-hmm. on uh on Jesuits and the importance of missionary work, right? And, and religion in general, and religion in general. That's right. And uh, I I insisted that a lot of people in the critical community did not feel the same way. And our emails seem to have borne that out. A lot of emails disagreed with that reading of the film. Mm-hmm. This email comes in from Chuck from Chicago. Chuck writes in, long-time listener, first-time emailer, love the show but was flabbergasted to listen to three pretty smart guys completely misinterpret Martin Scorsese's latest masterpiece, Silence, on your latest episode. I'll pre- uh, uh, preface this by saying I'm a devout atheist, so probably approaching film from similar perspective as Jeff and Dimitri. Still, I was totally flummoxed as how you could think this movie was defini- definitively on the side of Jesuits. I will point to just one instance to show how you guys kind of miss the boat. The apparently controversial moment where God breaks his titular silence and speaks to the Andrew Garfield character. Throughout the film, the Padre has shown outward full devotion while his inner uh, monologue has wavered between feelings his faith is being rewarded and extreme doubts that he, hear- uh, that he never voices. In this pivotal scene, he's faced with an impossible choice of renouncing his belief in Christ publicly and letting others who have, continu- who have continue to suffer and die. You are right in one respect. It is a cop-out, but it is a cop-out for the character, not the film. For me, I saw this as him having to rationalize his decision and interpreted the movement as hallucinatory, his choosing to believe he hears God's voice in order to excuse his actions. It could also be read as God's voice, but there is no conclusive answer, uh, and for you to suggest otherwise is just silly. This is further emphasized by the fact that the voice of God is provided by Kieran Hines, who played their mentor back in Portugal, who sent them on this mission in the first place. I think you guys were off about other points. I cannot agree that this is a white savior movie. The Jesuit priests are literally the reason these Japanese Christians are suffering in the first place. Seemed like you guys wanted the film to come down much harder against the Jesuits, and in the end, it was just much more open-ended. If the final shot bothered you, keep in mind that cross was placed there by his wife, not something he died with. And her reasoning for doing so is ripe for interpretation. Anyway, always enjoy listening to you guys discuss films, even if you're wrong. Keep up the good work. 500 episodes and a movie. That email comes from Chuck from Chicago. Firstly, I want to just say that I am very grateful for listeners who, A, think we were super wrong on silence. And and B, still listen to the show. And C, engage with us by writing in very thoughtful emails. So thanks for everyone who, like... You know, if someone misinterpreted a movie I love that badly, I might just be like, I'm not listening to you guys again. <laughs> but, but our <laughs> listeners are much more forgiving than me, and I really appreciate that. So, 500 episodes in a movie, I like that. Yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun sign off. So, a couple things that Chuck brings up, right? Firstly, that, uh, and this is an interpretation that a lot of people have voiced, is that at the end of the movie, when Andrew Garfield sees uh, or hears the voice of God, it's actually Kieran Hines. And he could be hallucinating it. And it could be because it's so – either the faith is so embedded deeply within him that that's what he hears or he's using this voice to kind of – like God actually is silent and he's hallucinating this voice to rationalize his actions. Uh, what do you think of that interpretation, Jeff? I It didn't uh, – it didn't pass by my notice that it was uh, the voice of his of – his, um supervisor from the beginning of the film supervisor but, his his shift manager yeah the uh <laughs> yeah the night manager at the old uh, monastery um it, it it i i think that's a um a fair interpretation of that scene in, in the sense of him having a hallucination or him imposing that voice onto the moment i don't 
for me, that doesn't leave the movie off the hook because we're still hearing it and it I does I, I feel like it's reinforcing his faith. It's not it doesn't uh show his faith as being in question or uh misplaced. I think it's it because we the audience hear that. I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's a I, fair. It's a fair interpretation. It's, if it's that's a fair the way interpretation. But here's here's where I don't I, find it persuasive. Th- that's fair enough. Uh, here's where I come down on it. Is I, I think you know I've been thinking a lot about all these emails we've gotten. I've read all the emails, so thank you, thank you for them at slashfromcastgmail.com. And and here's where I come down on it is that like if if you were raised uh, as a Christian as I was, you know, imagine that your whole life you've been taught, hey. Um, Think of it not as the gospel. Think of it like uh, people need water to live, right? That's maybe more relatable. Like th- people need water to survive. We all, we all know that. You, you can't survive for more than a week without water, right? You'll die if you don't drink water uh, for mm-hmm. a week. And the whole first half of the movie, we've seen this guy going out. There's all this desert out in the world. He's going out. He's giving water to all these people. You see they desperately need water. They're like, we're dying. We're dying. We have no water. We need water. This guy is going out and giving it to them. And then there's this Japanese government that's saying, hey, don't give people the water. And in fact, if you give people water, we will kill them. Right? If you try to give people water, we'll kill them. Mm-hmm. Who are you going to side with more in that situation? Right? Like, I think the movie sets it up so that you're siding with the people, the guy who's giving everyone water, the guy who's giving people what they need to live. Right. Um, and then at the end, a voice tells them, hey, you know what? You know what? You don't need to give them water because don't worry. Like, the, the 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 great water dispenser in the sky says, "Hey, you don't need to give people water because, like, I understand the Japanese these Japanese folks are being really unreasonable, and <laughs> you know you don't need to give them water. Like, I, I still hear your pain at the, your current situation. Um, and that's that's ultimately where I come down on it. Is like if if you believe that this this gospel is so important, right? Which you do if you're a Christian, then anything that impedes it is gonna be." Uh, is is not going to be viewed in a favorable light, and uh, and when Andrew Garfield's character stops doing so at the end, stops dispensing the gospel, stops dispensing this you know life giving substance at the end, uh, it's because whether he rationalized it himself or God told him uh, that it's okay, it, it it still has not repudiated the idea that the water is important. In right. my opinion, and that specific kind of water. Yeah, that specific kind of water. That yeah. that vitamin water. Yeah, yeah. The, the vitamin water by the Coca Cola company. You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, so that's why I interpreted the film the way I interpreted it. The other the other point he makes is that the wife put the uh, the thing into his into his you know the last shot. The yeah. wife puts the the uh, crucifix into his hand. We literally know zero about his wife. Yeah, like. Zero. We know nothing about her. So to say, oh, well, maybe it's, we, it, it, it could mean all kinds of things because she's a blank canvas. It's like, no, it can only mean something about him because the movie could not care less about his wife. You know, she is, she is a non-entity. Well, you don't know anything about the relationship either. You, you really yeah, don't understand exactly. what the dynamic is. She doesn't have a name. Like you've never seen them talk. It's like, it's, she's not even, she's barely a character. She's a prop. Yeah, and one thing that – I guess one other interpretation is, oh, maybe she found this Christian item and wanted it to burn, you know, along with – Yeah, right. Right? That's ridiculous. 
that's not the position that the movie is taking. I mean, if you want to impose that on it, fair enough. But that's I, not I think the, our interpretation is that she buried it with him because she knew he was faithful to the end, right? Even though right. he couldn't the, live it out. The implication it, is she was giving she, – either she knew it or she, she was granting his final wish, you know, which is – I think yeah. – reinforces the interpretation that you and I came away with. All right. This email is from Liam from Texas, and it's a lot longer, uh, but strapping. It's, I think it's a really good email. This comes in from Liam from Texas. He writes to slash from com. I've been listening for a few years, and I've never written before, but I felt compelled after listening to episode 400. Sorry for in advance for the novel. I was raised in a devout Catholic household. I have many friends and family members in the religious life, and I spent some time in monastery. Consider the monastic life of the priesthood. Uh, additionally, I've undergone the Jesuit retreat known as the Spiritual Exercises, and I believe that it is that experience specifically that left me with a far different impression regarding silence. Firstly, I want to say I think this film is a masterpiece. As you all noted, it demands your attention. It is brutally honest with regards to the doubt that many in the religious life experience. Uh, even revered figures such as St. John of the Cross and Mother Teresa have experienced the silence of the dark night of the soul. And it perhaps more than any other film I've seen displays the urgency and the danger that Catholic missionaries have experienced throughout history. However, I believe that this film is a critique rather than a celebration of Catholic and specifically Jesuit philosophy. In order to understand why, it's important to understand what the spiritual exercises entail. The Wikipedia page does a good job of covering the basics, but in essence, it is a month-long silent retreat that Jesuits undergo in order to discern the will of God by contemplating moments in Christ's life as described in the Gospels and considering these moments from the perspective of Christ in order to fall in love with Christ and his church by better understanding his infinite mercy and love. The emphasis is placed on thinking as Christ would. Catholic priests are not strictly unmarried from a theological standpoint. They take the Holy Church as their bride. Jesuits take this obligation very seriously, and the process to become a Jesuit priest is one of the longest in the Catholic Church. The exercises, as they're commonly referred to both now and during the time of the film, are the distinguishing characteristic of the Jesuit priesthood. They are seen as St. Ignatius of Loyola's lasting gift to the order. It is similar to how people in the military view basic training. If you make it through that, you're probably worth something. This is where Scorsese lays his critique, squarely on the importance with which Jesuits view the spiritual exercises as something that sets them apart, both from other priests and from the faithful members of the church. The exercises are how Father Rodriguez convinces uh, Father Vagliano to allow them to venture to Japan to find Father Ferreira. They are the time in which Father Rodriguez first develops his image of Christ, whom he hears speak to him. And I believe that Scorsese wants us to think that they are the benchmark in Father Rodriguez's mind for really hearing God's will. Father Rodriguez has played against Father Garupe, who places less importance on the exercises and more importance on delivering the sacraments to the Japanese Christians. He ministers to the Japanese as Christ would, unto his own death. And rather than consistently uh, being preoccupied with seeking out God's will like Father Rodriguez, Father Grupe does as Christ commands. He brings the Eucharist and confession to the faithful, whom he loves unto the sacrifice of his own death. The underlying theme of the film, from a Jesuit perspective, is that Father Rodriguez never truly made it past the exercises, so he still sees himself as Christ in these situations. All the characters play roles that are mirrored in the Gospels. Kijichiro is both Peter, who denied Christ three times, and Judas, who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Inoue plays the role of the Pharisees, who advocated for Christ's crucifixion to protect the native Jewish faith of the Israelites, and of Herod who is the prefect of Galilee that ordered the massacre of the innocents. The interpreter is Pontius Pilate, who gave Christ many opportunities to save himself, but in the end was not afraid to spill blood to preserve his own power. Because Father Rodriguez sees these roles, he acts not as a priest would, 
but as he wishes. Because he seems sees himself as Christ, and Christ is immaculate and without sin, Father Rodriguez excuses his own terrible sin by convincing himself that he is Christ-like, and he wouldn't even be able to consider doing something truly sinful. The line of the movie that made it click is when Liam Neeson's character says, You see Jesus in Gethsemane and believe your trial is the same as his. Those five in the pit are suffering too, just like Jesus, but they don't have your pride. They would never compare themselves to Jesus. Do you have the right to make them suffer? This movie is neither pro-Christian nor anti-Christian in my opinion. Instead, it's a sharp critique of a particular aspect of the faith, the temptation to equate our own suffering and trials with those of Christ. Scorsese's message in this movie isn't that Christianity is good. It's that you cannot be a good Christian if you are as proud as Father Rodriguez and Father Ferreira. This is a greater critique than one might readily assume because in every sacrament, the priest acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. In the moment of the sacrament, the priest is imbued with Christ and acts in his stead to perform the miracle of the sacrament. So in this film, Scorsese illustrates the need for priests and specifically Jesuit priests to step away from the persona Christi and maintain their humility outside of their sacramental duties. Whew! That email is from Liam from Texas. Uh, who's talking about how silence is not a critique of Christianity, but about a specific aspect of the Jesuit faith. So what do you think of that, Jeff? Any thoughts? Uh, I mean, that's pr- fairly dense and comes from a very... Uh, dense informed... in a good way. You mean not like dense in like... Uh... No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it's, it's not... Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's densely... It's rich. It's rich in, in information. And um, it comes from a very informed place, much more informed than I about uh obviously about the religion i my knee-jerk reaction to it though is that for a what nearly three-hour movie that's a pretty narrow reading (laughs) i think you know taking one line and extrapolating the whole movie about that i i think that's certainly part of it i think there's there is a critique of pride and and certainly some of the themes uh toward the end of the movie Dealing with the pride of the priests and, and equating themselves to Christ, I think is, is a part of the movie. I don't think it's the central theme of the movie. Um, and I, I think it, I think it's one of the things the movie is dealing with. And I think perhaps, I, I, I like that this resonates for this viewer because he's, uh, clearly moved by, by his personal experience and how it relates to this, this movie. And I think that's, that's a sign of a, a beautiful film, but I don't think that that's all that it's about. And I certainly don't think that you can say the movie it doesn't take a, a position simply because it raises this question. I think it, it, for me, I'm not persuaded by any of the emails we got and we got many of them. Uh, I'm not persuaded that this movie is anything but very pro Christian belief. And that's fine. It's fine. It just made f- for me a less compelling viewing experience because rather than raising questions and letting me struggle with them, it raised questions and then answered them. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot to this and I guess I, I'm not, I didn't know about the in persona Christie part and like, like priests being imbued with Christ, uh, Christ, I guess being, you know, uh, I, I didn't know about any of that. Like I, 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 I was raised Protestant, so I don't know about that element of the faith. Uh, but, it does feel like, yeah, the, the film does seem to be critiquing that. But like you said, Jeff, it also does a lot of other things that, that don't feel like a critique of that. Right. Uh, I, I do also want to say, like, one other thing that bothered me about Silence that I didn't get, have a chance to get into in, uh, in our movie review is there is a persecution complex that 
modern day evangelicals have that I think is incredibly damaging. Uh, and yeah, no doubt. Uh, what I what do I mean by that? The Bible lays out that basically, if you are being persecuted, you're doing the right thing. Like mm-hmm. like you're going to get rewards in heaven. It means basically you're on the right track. Like how do you, how do you check uh, if if you're doing the right thing? You're being persecuted by the world. That's how right. you know if you're doing the right thing. People are giving you crap about what you believe and how you believe it. That's how you know that what you're doing is right, right? Yeah. And uh, this is why people are celebrating that you can say Merry Christmas now because Donald Trump is president, right? Right. Is because they feel oppressed. And, and, and let me just say flatly, my belief is that they invent oppressions for themselves. Like I agree. Uh, no one was stopping you from saying Merry Christmas. You can say Merry Christmas to whoever you want. Uh, people try to be more inclusive by saying Happy Holidays. You say, hey, uh, that you know somehow encroaches on my faith. I think that's preposterous. Uh, but, but hey, if, if they don't say it's encroaching on my faith, if they don't say happy holidays is an affront to Christianity, then maybe they're not doing the right thing. Maybe they're not being Christian enough because they're not being persecuted for their beliefs. Hmm. So there's this whole idea that Christians need to be persecuted in order for their beliefs to actually be real, which is a shame because Christians have won. Like Christians won. The modern day culture war in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, what's the you, great the great line that uh, Louis C.K. says? Uh, yeah, <laughs> he I, said, "If you want to know, did Christians win? What year is it? Yeah, ask yourself what year is this? Yeah, right? what year is it? Um, yeah, in, in China, in uh, <laughs> India, anywhere in the world, what year is it? Right. How do we keep track? And and so Christians like. Overall one. Now, of course, there's other, there's things that they're not winning, like, um, uh, Roe v. Wade and gay marriage. You know, there's things that they would love to, to be winning in the culture war. But overall, like, I'd say overall, Donald Trump is going to be president. 80% of white evangelicals voted for him. Christians have won. This movie feeds into this whole narrative, in my opinion, of Christians being persecuted. And it is so hard to be Christian because look, even when we try to do the right thing, uh, the, these people are not torturing us for it. They're torturing other people for it. And that's like the worst thing. Oh, wow. That, it's even more hard than if they're torturing us for it because they're torturing other people. Oh, that's even more, that's even more difficult. <laughs> it's like, it, it feeds into that whole narrative in a way that like, I don't think Christians need to, to feel like they're like, they don't need to be reminded of how, how rough they had it. Right. The movie is about the suffering of Father Rodriguez and Father uh, Garupe and Father Ferreira more than it is about the suffering of the Japanese. Right. And I don't think I don't think uh, white evangelicals need to be reminded. Again, these are not Father Rodriguez is not a white evangelical, but I'm just saying it will be viewed through that lens. And I don't think white evangelicals need to be reminded of how much uh, Christians have endured in the past through a proxy such as Andrew Garfield. So. Right. So that's kind of why the movie really kind of bothered me. And, uh, you know, one other aspect of the movie that bothered me, which I'm sure is going to incite more emails saying they disagree with us. But yeah, Jeff, I love these emails. I think they're super thoughtful. Mm-hmm. They raised issues in the movie that I didn't think about, but ultimately I, I don't change my opinion. Like sometimes Agreed. we'll read an email and it'll change our opinion on the movie, but in this case it did not do so. so. I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I want to reinforce the fact that I am so glad I saw this movie and I, the fact that we can have these discussions is just a sign that it's great art and it's a, it's a, it's a spectacular film. It's beautifully shot. 
it's well worth your time to see, even if it left me a little dissatisfied thematically. I still think it's a, a very worthwhile film to see. I'm going to read one last email, Jeff, to cap us off, because no one no one's even listening at this point in the podcast. Oh, no, so they stopped listening they, halfway through that last dude's email. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or possibly we got to the silent spoiler section. <laughs> this email comes in from Ron. Uh, from Dare Dreamer FM. Ron writes in to slashfilmcastgmail.com. This is not, by the way, this is not about silence at all. This is just a capper for this after dark. So if you've already stopped listening, tune back in. <laughs> As always, I love what you do, but after listening to the spoiler section of your La La Land review, I had to yell at you. In love, though. I'm yelling in love. Oh, so found, many people have yelled at me about the La La Land review. Oh, I man. found it comically ironic that in one episode, Jeff lamented the unrealistic ending of a movie where the main character is offered a free coffee and muffin due to her celebrity. Then just a few episodes later, he tells the story of how he and his wife were offered a free bottle of wine because the hostess recognized his wife's last name. <laughs> and Dave, I recall the story of you a few years ago about getting a free meal or something while on a ship to Chicago. Your La La Land review had, I believe, one of the most bittersweet Hollywood-style profound twists I've ever heard on your show. Because for the first time I can remember, Jeff, who's usually the heart and voice of optimism, was now Fox Mulder in the later years of the X-Files. And Devendra, of all people, who's usually Mr. Dark and Demented, was the bastion of light, hope, and reason. Look at you three. You're Jeff fucking Kanata, star of the Slash Filmcast DLC and We Have Concerns, all award-winning top-rated shows. You got to interview Doctor Strange. You're Devinder Hardwar, co-star of the Slash Filmcast, on uh, one of the top 30 podcasts as determined by Complex Magazine, writer for one of, if not the top, online technology magazines on the planet. And Dave, you're Dave fucking Chen, host and producer for of the top 10 film and television podcasts on iTunes, producer and director of one feature film, and exec producer of another. Okay, so maybe you're not George Clooney, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or Ira Glass, but nonetheless, you three are stars of the new Hollywood, loved and admired by perhaps millions all over the world. Why? Because you had a dream that you went after. There are plenty of indie movies with more quote-unquote real endings, but the reason we have Jeff Kanata's, Devinder Hardwar's, and David Chen's, and George Clooney's of the world is because of movies like La La Land. They give artists <laughs> fire. George Clooney's just the just, – just, yeah, one just of these kids it, is just throw them in there. like the other. Yeah. Just throw them in there. They're all the same. All the same. They give artists fire and hope to take a chance no matter how infinitesimally small the probability of success is. As David Thoreau put it, go confidently in the direction of your dreams to live the life you've always imagined. And you still have so much more of your life to reach even greater heights. Ridley Scott didn't direct Alien until he was 45. Larry King's 83. Stan Lee's 94. Moses was 80 when God spoke to him through the burning bush. You could each live another full lifetime and accomplish who knows how much more I should say. Jeff, I sometimes feel like you're my brother from another mother. Uh, as one brother artist to another, revisit La La Land with the eyes of a child and let the childlike spirit take you on the journey it took me. Keep up the great work. Oh, I have so many responses to that. <laughs> First of all, uh, I know he was being tongue-in-cheek, but I just want to be very clear, if, if there is anyone still listening, that my problem with the ending of La La Land had nothing to do with getting free food at the <laughs> coffee shop because anybody living in Los Angeles knows that happens all the time. Um, no stars pay for anything. Anyway... Um, the other thing I will say is that's a lovely email yes. and I, I'm so, uh, delighted and, and flattered and, uh, humbled by the sentiment that it, that it, it, it represents. And a lot of people said similar things of like, Hey, I, I got an actu actually amazing email that was sent, uh, just to me from somebody saying, um, basically, uh, 
I'm glad you never became a big actor because I meant, would have meant that I wouldn't have had your podcast to listen to. Oh. And, you know, I think that's a lovely thing, and I'm very flattered. But also, screw you, man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's difficult for me to uh, say this. Luckily, no one is listening at this point, so I can still <laughs> I can say it just to you, Dave. Um, because it, any way you try to describe that feeling, it sounds ungrateful. It sounds um, – um, I don't know. It sounds cynical. It sounds uh, bitter. Bitter is the word I was looking for. Uh, and I try not to be. And I do really, really, really feel grateful for my life. I love my life. I'm very pleased. I do feel very happy that we have the audience that we have uh, here and in other places. And, I, you know, there's there's no part of me that doesn't love what I do. I, and I, and that is an extraordinary place to be in. And I love that. But you know, when it kind, he kind of points to exactly my criticism with the movie, which is that for so long in the film, it feels like a very authentic view of how difficult and how, uh, trying a life in the arts is. And then he says something like, Oh, you know, Jeff, you got to, you know, you have all these things. You got to interview Doctor Strange. I wanted to be Doctor Strange, right? Yeah. That that's that was the goal. I want to be Doctor Strange. Yes, I get to interview Doctor Strange, and that's cool. And I wish the film had a similar message that she wanted to be the chick in the coffee shop. Yeah. And if she had not become the exact thing that she wanted to be, it could still be okay. There yeah. could have been a version of the movie where, hey, everything doesn't work out exactly as you thought it would be, but it's still a happy, joyous life. There's right. still there's still things to be gained if you don't achieve the exact dream you set out to do. But instead, the movie gives her the exact version that she always wanted in a magical way, in a highly unlikely lottery winning type way and she she becomes the exact thing she wants to be and i think that that is a cop out i think that that doesn't land as truthfully as the rest of the movie does and doesn't feel like i can take anything away from that other than magic happens <laughs> and and i like when magic happens in movies a lot this movie it just felt incongruous because it had set up such a much more realistic version of events to then right at the end just drop magic onto the situation. Yeah, that makes sense, Jeff. You know, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, I was seeing this this play out recently that like, uh, if you if you have achieved let's say lower tier podcast fame as we have on the Sideshow <laughs> Guest, C level podcast fame is how I describe it. Um, Wait, what's a B then? I don't, I don't know. That's, I don't more, like, that's more like a DLC. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then, and then A level would be like This American Life or Adam right. Carolla. You know, right. that's how I, that's how I rank it. <laughs> that's that's my rankings that I just came up with spur of the moment, and I'm sticking by them. <laughs> uh, that if you are in the public eye at all, like there is very little uh, room to complain. And and in fact, one of the only safe places to complain is at one hour and forty five minutes into a podcast. <laughs> I don't want to be complaining. I don't want it to. No, no, no. I, but like, but I'm saying, but I'm saying, like, yeah, there are elements of 
of you know hosting podcasts or doing this kind of life that suck. And you can't really talk about it because if you if you even hint at that, uh, you are perceived as being very ungrateful for you know all the wonderful things that you have. And uh, th- th- this is not really directly related to what you're saying. It's just kind of a corollary that like I've seen this happen where anytime anyone who has over like ten thousand followers on Twitter complains about anything, they are set upon by people, presumably fans, who just are super upset that they could ever complain about anything. It, it just is like a weird thing that you can't do if you are in the public eye at all. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I agree with with that sentiment. The way I would phrase it is that it's possible to be both extraordinarily grateful for where you are and also harbor some desire to be somewhere else at the same time. Right. That those those are not mutually exclusive feelings. That you can feel a sense of uh, unfulfillment. Uh, you can feel a sense of of um, not quite achieving your dreams and also feel very grateful for what you have accomplished. It, those two things can exist at the same time. Indeed. Well, Jeff, I think we've made a lot of progress in our session today. Thanks. I, I'm <laughs> glad we did. Uh, luckily, no one will hear this. <laughs> well, thanks for all the emails, everyone. Uh, they are truly great. And hopefully segments like this show you that we are listening, reading, and enjoying them. And uh, yeah, it means a lot to us.